Hey, I want to, I, I just want to thank you for coming out today. I, I know this weekend schedule has been ru- brutal. Um, it means a lot that you're here with us this morning to share with us. I'd like to recognize visiting clergy. Pastor Keith McCullough did an excellent message last night. Thank you for joining us again this morning. Amen. Be- before we get started, you don't know where you are without a roadmap. I literally have a roadmap today. If you didn't get a copy of this, raise your hand. We'll, we'll get it out to you. Ramey, we'd like to recognize what God is doing in your life as you consider going to seminary. So uh, now the pressure's really on. I've got two visiting clergy. And, you know, last, yesterday we talked about the Old Testament. It was really incredible, uh, Pastor Keith, because you presented uh, exactly the same passages we talked about yesterday morning. And to get... A, a different perspective on them is valuable, knowing that uh, there are a number of threads in each of the books that we look at. That's what we did last night. We pulled on the thread in the Old Testament that held all of the books together. It wasn't the only teaching that's in the Old Testament, but it was one of the major teachings. How does each book relate a portion of God's story of redemption to, to us, and what value does the Old Testament have? The Old Testament begins that story, uh, prepares us for the incarnation, which is why we're here today, preparing for God to become flesh, to walk among us. So we found out yesterday that the Old Testament is more than, than a history book. It's a vital part of God's roadmap for redemption. And we need to understand the Old Testament as well as we do the New Testament. Now, I know that you know this, but we want to we make clear why this is important. If we're going to fully appreciate God's plan for our lives, we need to understand the full counsel of His Word. So, I, I want you to think of it this way. If I wanted to drive, if I was in San Francisco, and I wanted to drive from San Francisco to Washington, D.C., I would plug... Washington, D.C. into my GPS. You all understand what GPS is, right? Okay? And the road would look like this. The trip would have a definite beginning and would have a well-defined end. Now, the Bible, the Bible has a similar structure to it. It has a beginning and it has an end. It starts with what? Genesis. And ends with revelation. Now, in my car trip, if I only used part of the map, if I only used the part that took me to Chicago, I would get to Chicago, and I wouldn't know how to finish my trip. Amen? I'd be like, okay, another 575 miles to go. Hmm, how do I get there? So, that's what it's like if we pay too much attention to the Old Testament. Now, very few people are actually guilty of that, uh, matter of fact, it's the other way around. But if, if, we, if we pay too much attention to the Old Testament, we don't know the rest of the story. Well, if I had a map from Chicago to D.C. while I was in San Francisco, I wouldn't know how to get to Chicago. I go, well, you know, if I could get to Chicago somehow, I, I, I think I can make it to D.C. because I got a map. This is what it's like if we ignore the Old Testament. Just as we need the whole map to make the car trip, 
We need the whole Bible to know all of God's story. Amen? And if we're going to understand what he has to say to us, we, we have to read everything he said. So let's compete, complete our trip this morning. Let's take a look at the New Testament and how it finishes uh, the story of the Old Testament. Now, again, we're, we're going to do the same thing we did yesterday. We're going to pull on the major threads in the books of the New Testament that hold the narrative together. There's a, a ton more teaching that well, we have time to present this morning in the New Testament, but we're going to hold on to those themes that, that string these books together in an understandable way. And we're going to start out with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're, they're, these are what we are, are called the synoptic gospels. They're a summary of Jesus' life and ministry, a synopsis of his time here on earth. And, and they each have their own personality. Matthew is written to a very Jewish audience, so his gospel will relate very closely to the Old Testament and its teachings. Matthew frequently assumes that, uh, that his readers will know the basics of Judaism, uh, that his readers will know that there's a Messiah coming. They may not know who he is, but they know that one's coming. Now, Mark writes to a Gentile audience. It's a completely different audience. And so he explains things a bit more simply because for a lot of these people, it's the first time they're hearing this. So uh, it, it's a bit more clear, and he doesn't make the same assumptions. He concentrates on the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. He wants to let them know that. His message is more towards the practical end of things. And Matthew's kind of like, what would a relationship with Jesus Christ look like? What is it like when you come into contact with a living God? Luke's a doctor, and he does things analytically. He tends to provide more details, but he also has a bit of an outsider's perspective to things. So here's what it's looked like when you've come into the faith. Looking objectively at things, Luke kind of gives a fresh perspective. And the great thing about Luke, and most people don't realize this, is Luke prominently features women in his gospel. And for that time, in that culture, that was a fairly radical thought. You know, he presents women as uh, supporters of Christ, as encouragers of Christ. As, as a matter of fact, uh, the very first charge that, that Christ makes in taking the gospel of someone else comes through Luke when, when he tells Mary, go tell them. Go tell them. So that, yeah, that seems like uh, uh, old stories to us, but back then that was a radical thing to do. So John's gospel is a gospel of a different sort. It, its primary focus is on Christ as Messiah. John's gospel is what we call inductive. It teaches very deeply. It is deeply doctrinal, focusing on the sonship of Christ and his divinity. His divinity. We don't normally think of a lot of theology coming through the Gospels, but you take a look at John and you find out it, it's, it's the foundations of our theology and doctrine. So when you look at the four Gospels together, we, we have one that would be clear to the Jews. We have another that would be clear to the Gentiles. That kind of covers everybody on earth at that point. To the Jews, there were only two groups, Jews and non-Jews. They called them Gentiles. We have this, this one that is inclusive and detailed and, and one that emphasizes theology and doctrine. Now, we're going to hear a lot about theology and doctrine as we go through the New Testament. 
Together, they lay a foundation for the new covenant. And what they do together, if you read them and, and harmonize them, if you were to sit down and do charts and figure out what are they talking about here and how does that fit with this and so on and so forth, you would find out that they establish the fact that this baby born in Bethlehem is the Savior of the world. That's why they're called the Gospels. Now, Acts not only introduces the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we see the Holy Spirit come down and fill men in Acts chapter 2, but it traces the early foundations of the church. Uh, it's a little bit of a history, kind of the same way that Kings and Chronicles are in the Old Testament. It moves in detail from signs and wonders. There, there are a tremendous number of signs and wonders in the beginning of Acts, so we know that God moves in the miraculous, God moves in the supernatural, and then it moves into persecution from without for the church and persecution, opposition from within. We see the church and the tensions of, of a growing church. In Acts, Saul rises up as a converted Jew, a well-respected one. Theologian sat under Gamaliel, the greatest, one of the greatest teachers Israel ever had. And, and he gets a new name. He's Paul. So God sends this, this well-respected Jewish kind of rising superstar, oddly enough, to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. So Peter, who was once Cephas, rises up in Acts as well. He emerges as a leader of the church. And so this rough around the edges Galilean, this, this fisherman, we would call him we would call Peter a redneck if we were going to put a label on him today. God sends him to the Jews. And he's going to preach and teach the Jews. So one of the primary lessons that we should see in Acts centers around changes. Changes in the church. Changes in the hearts of the leaders of the church, as they learn to respect each other, as they learn to work with each other, as they learn how to become brothers in the faith. Changes in tradition, and most of all, changes in the hearts of those who are called. The primary lesson we should get from Acts is that we see transformation. Transformation is evident in the leaders. And if transformation is evident in the leaders of the first century church, transformation should be evident in us as well. A relationship with Jesus Christ changes us. That shows on the outside. You take a look at the beginning of Acts, everybody's arguing. At the end of Acts, everybody's moving together. Relatively late in his career, Paul pens Romans. But it shows up right after Acts. This is important. I told you yesterday that I believe that the, the order of the books is divinely inspired. I can't prove it. It's just my idea. But I don't think there's any coincidence at all that Romans comes right after Acts. Romans is very sophisticated. Romans is extremely deep. It's a theological treatise. And it appears after Acts as a theological foundation. It shows us that the new church is to be based on sound theology and that it would refine itself by, by working out all of the doctrine that applies to the church as the church grew and matured. Paul sets the bar high in Romans. 
And he does it by putting a strong emphasis on doctrine and theology. They were vitally important to Paul. And in a day when the, the church would rise up, many in the church would rise up and tell you that doctrine and theology are dry, that they're not important. Paul sits right at the end of Acts and says, yes, they are important. They're so important that after we establish a foundation of the church, we're going to show you what that foundation is built on. It's built on sound doctrine, sound theology, and the sound teaching of both. Now, Romans is the first in a series of epistles that are authored by the apostles or by people that the apostles thought were authoritative, epistles or letters. Most of the early epistles are corrective in nature. They're efforts to keep that brand new fledgling church on the right track and bring clarity to some of the difficult teaching that's going out. First and second Corinthians do exactly that. We're written, they're written to a church that was rich and arrogant. You don't have to read too far in between the lines to see that the Corinthian church had its own struggles and they were with themselves, not with the people outside. They, they thought they were mature though. They thought they had arrived. Paul calls them babies who are still drinking milk that should have moved on to meat by now. Then he goes on to show them what it means to be a mature Christian. And when he does that, he sets the expectation that the Christian walk is not an easy one. And it's one that's marked by growth and humility. And humility and maturity are an expected outcome of our, of our walk. But pride and arrogance can get in the way. And that's the lesson of 1 and 2 Corinthians. Spiritual growth should be the evidence of our transformation. But our own pride can hinder that. Can cause us to stagnate and bog down. Galatians is another corrective. Who has bewitched you? Galatians. They're holding on to tradition for tradition's sake, and that can be dangerous. So as we change, our hearts and desires should be a sign that we're changing, but the idea of sound theology would, would refine us, would draw us closer to the Father. It would work its way out as we grew, as we matured. But the Galatians are holding on to the past. They're falling back on the old way of doing things. They're observing a work-based faith. If I do this, God will like me. If I don't do that, God's going to give me a hard time. But Christ and his salvation are gifts of grace. And Paul calls them back to that sound teaching. And we learn that the things we do won't save us. The things we do won't save us. But the things we do will show that we're saved. Ah, amen. The things we do are a sign that we're saved, a sign that we're transformed. And Paul exhorts the church at Ephesus and ushers them into an incredibly deep teaching in his letter to the Ephesians, another doctrinal treatise. And we hear in Ephesians that we as a church are called to imitate Christ in every area of our life, including our spiritual walk. That's in chapter 6 of Ephesians. Paul is a living testimony to that. 
We learn that Jesus Christ is our model, and Jesus Christ should permeate everything that we do and say, all of our relations, starting with our most intimate relations, going out to the relations with our family, going out to the relations in our community, the place that we work, and how we walk through that community. Now, Philippians is another encouraging letter. It teaches a twofold lesson. Well, Paul's doubling up in Philippians. Teaches the joy of being a servant and the joy of giving freely. And it also teaches that as we serve, now this is kind of, if, if you put these together, they don't really fit in any sort of contemporary sense, but you, it teaches the joy of being a servant, the joy of giving freely, and that a Christian should be content in all things. Wow. You know, my... My flesh tells me I'm more content when people are serving me and giving to me. Paul says, our changing nature turns that upside down. You serve and give and be content in everything that God puts on your plate. That's a tough one. Paul's a living testimony to the truth of both of those lessons. And we know that because Philippians is written while Paul is in prison in Rome. He's in prison. I, I, I don't have to tell you about what prisons in Rome in the first century were like. Paul's saying, I'm content in all things. Matter of fact, I'm here to serve and give. Cold and hungry, tortured and beaten, content in all things. Huh. Colossians takes that teaching an even a step further and claims that in spite of what we may think, in spite of how we may feel, Christ is everything that we need. His grace sustains us. Jesus Christ is all that we need. He is superior to all human philosophies. He's greater than all human traditions. And furthermore, he's greater than every human desire other than himself that we can have. Our greatest need is to be drawn unto Jesus Christ. Then Paul writes two letters to the church at Thessalonica, 1st and 2nd, 2nd Thessalonians. This is a church, it's a new church, they're, they're baby Christians, they're under heavy persecution, and maybe this is an outgrowth of both of those factors, uh, heavy persecution, new Christians, they seem to be preoccupied with the end times, worried about what's going to happen when you die. Has Jesus come back already? What do we do if he's come back and we don't realize it? And, that, you know, they're reading Chariots of Fire. And um, what was that book in the 80s? Late Great Planet Earth. You know, and, and they're saying, oh, you know, this is what it's going to look like. And, and they're just preoccupied. Paul encourages them to, listen, as a remedy to that, Paul encourages them to work at their faith. Oh no, there's another tough one, isn't Aren't we just supposed to sit and bask in the glory of the Lord? I mean, I've had that taught to me. You've heard it. You don't have to do anything. God does it all. Let me give you a bumper sticker. Let go and let God. Just sit there and let it happen. Any demands that are put upon you are legalism. Don't fall under that legalism. Paul says you got to work at your faith. 
This is not the only time we're going to hear this in the New Testament. And, and, and he says, the way you work at your faith is you don't grow weary at doing good. You keep on doing good. Now, it's not a commandment, but I'd say it's a pretty strong suggestion. If you want to walk in the fullest blessing of the Lord, then you do what he says. And Paul says, don't get tired of doing good. Which means we got to do some good. It's incredible. And he's saying this to, to baby Christians. You know, we hear this all the time, don't we? Oh, we don't want to get too deep. New believers won't be able to understand us. We got to talk down to their level. We got to make the church attractive to them. Paul's coming in going, going work on your faith. Don't, do, don't get, grow weary of doing good. Huh. And we see Philemon. Paul shows us that that working at doing good, working at our faith, that working together means that no Christian brother is above or better than another. And that we are to respect each other as fellow believers. Why? Because humility is a reflection of Christ, and that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be a reflection of this baby that walked on earth and walked among us and, and ministered to us. Why, why, why should we imitate him? Well, because he died for us. So that we could be with him forever. Paul's last letters are called the pastoral epistles. I, I kind of regret um, I kind of regret that label because uh, I, I, I've had people say, well, there's for pastors. They're not for me. I'm not a pastor. We're all ministers of the gospel, amen? Uh, we're all called to be priests. Uh, so, the important thing about these last three is it's First and Second Timothy and Titus. They're Paul's last words. We've talked about this when we looked at Timothy. Second uh, Timothy, they're, they're Paul's last words. These are the most, Paul is ready to die. Uh, as he pens Second Timothy, he's waiting for the executioner to come. So he's got the last words of Timothy. These, these got to be the most important words that Paul's ever written. He's saying, here, Timothy, uh, you're going to be running the ministry. Uh, here's what I've learned. Here's what's important. He takes his two most prominent disciples, and he pours into them in these three books. But the overwhelming theme of all three books is, is, is what? It's preach the gospel, teach sound doctrine, teach sound theology. I mean, this is another thread that runs through all of the epistles. Sound doctrine and sound theology. Yet, we seem to have arrived as a church universal at a point where we, we want to disregard that. New believers can't understand theology. You give them too much doctrine, they can't take it. They'll go somewhere else where it's easier. We don't want to get too deep. It's too hard to understand. We have short attention spans. When I was installed as senior pastor, the prayer that was prayed over me was, may none of my sermons ever go longer than 20 minutes. I'm, I'm listening to this prayer with one eye open and going, whoa. 
We're short of that mark. Yet Paul's last words are ones that encourage to preach and teach sound doctrine. That's followed up by Hebrews, which is a sermon in itself. You want to see some doctrine and theology, wander through Hebrews. But the primary message of Hebrews is the sufficiency of Christ and how Christ is supreme above everything else, which means that Christ is supreme above everything in our lives. He's our highest desire, our fondest goal. And we should want nothing more than him and nothing more than more of him. Hebrews is an encouragement to prioritize our lives with Christ at the top of the list. James has this profound message that goes hand in hand with what Paul says. Paul says, work at your faith. A lot of people say Paul's message is uh, faith uh, is apart from works and that, that James is the anti-Paul message. But they go hand in hand together. Paul says, you know, uh, faith will evidence itself in its works. And James says, your works will be the evidence of your faith. That you're not going to have one without the other. If you have faith, it's going to show up in how you behave. It's going to show up in the things that you do. James says if you're doing works and you're really good works, it's because you have faith. So James talks a lot about suffering, and, you know, that's another thread that runs through the, uh, the New, uh, New Testament. But his primary message is that works are the evidence of our faith. If we have faith, it's going to show up in how we interact with the world. And we have Peter. Simple fisherman. Peter was not educated. And he writes two profound theological works. Both of them urge his readers to understand the basics. Both of them urge them to practice a form of practical Christian living. Put the things they learned to, to effect in how they live. And he says that these things will prepare us for hard times, and that hard times may well come to Christians, to people who, who uh, profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that uh, there are people in the world that will come against you because you profess Jesus Lord as Lord and Savior. And so he, Paul, uh, Peter's primary message is that our, our faith will be put on display in how we handle suffering, in how we walk through life's dark moments, our maturity will show in how we navigate the, the dark waters of our lives. First, second, and third, John and Jude have a lot to say. But their unifying theme is a caution against false teaching. Again, we're talking about doctrine here. The way to defend against an a, uh, errant doctrine is to be familiar with sound doctrine and to follow sound teachers. And that undercurrent exists in a lot of the epistles, and it's an appropriate emphasis to the last of the epistles as, as we look, as we near the end of the, Old, the New Testament, we hear this continued teaching on be careful what you learn, be careful who your teachers are, be careful on what you receive, compare everything that you hear and see, everything you're told, compare it to scriptures, be a Berean in your scripture, understand the scriptures, you're not going to know false teaching if you don't understand the scriptures, it kind of gets back to our roadmap, doesn't it? I don't know, I don't spend much time in the Old Testament, 
I don't like reading Romans. There are some tough chapters in there because I'm a self-determined person. I don't, I, I, don't, I don't like those short little letters. I don't know who those people are. And there's nothing in there for me. Philemon, I'm not a slave. I'm not a master. Why do I worry about what these people think? Things like that, attitudes like that, just open up the door to false teaching, us being led astray. So these, these last four short books tell us not to do that to be careful who we associate with, to be careful who we welcome into our pulpit, who we welcome into our homes. And that has a very profound meaning to us today, brothers and sisters, because none of us are really entertaining itinerant preachers anymore, are we? We just turn on the TV. We just download YouTube. (laughs) We just take a look at Facebook Live. These books are here to tell us to be very careful. Know who these people are. Read them, listen to them with your Bible open. Compare what they say to what your Bible says. The message is very simple. Teach sound doctrine, which means that we have to learn sound doctrine. If if Paul and Peter and John are just talking to pastors and telling them to teach sound doctrine, what does it mean to the church? Listen. (laughs) Listen. Learn. Now, all this is important because what we learn in Revelation, and Revelation is a complicated book. Every time I say, what should we do next? Somebody says, why don't you go through Revelation? You'll probably never see me go through Revelation. I don't understand it. <laughs> you know, there's so much symbology in there, and you can get tied up in the math and the, and the you know, these the flying things, and they kind of, oh, they're helicopters, and these explosions are atomic bombs, and, you know, and, and all that misses the point of Revelation. Because what Revelation tells us is that the baby who was born in Bethlehem is coming back. He's coming back. Now, again, we can get, we can get bogged down in the details in Revelation. We see that the, the, we see what kind of man the baby has become. And when he comes back, he's bringing judgment for everyone. This is terrifying. The baby is coming back on a white horse. His robes are dipped in blood. Lightning is coming out of his eyes. A two-edged sword is coming from his lips. And all who are with him on white horses behind him are saved for all of eternity. While those he is bearing down upon are not. They're trampled and cast into the lake of fire. Do you see why we read this scripture at the beginning? This is the result of the baby being born. Judgment comes. 
And we don't always associate that with Christmas. Nice warm feeling, the little baby and the lammies and so on and so forth is fantastic. It's a good feeling. It's true. And it's why God came in that simple fashion to show us what humility looks like. But there will come a day when there's no place for humility. There's only a place for holiness. The baby brings judgment. And those who believe in him are spared the wrath of God. Those who reject him have to absorb the wrath on their own. And they just can't. Now after all that messy stuff is over, creation is made new. Those who are in him have a new home. He's the second Adam undoing the destruction that the first Adam brought upon the earth. God's children are redeemed. They're made one with him and will live with him forever. And God's glory through all of that transformation and all that redemption is revealed to all of creation for all of eternity from then on. See, that's the plan. The plan was for God to reveal his glory. The benefit for those of us who believe in him, we get wrapped up in God glorifying himself. We become the beneficiaries of God's glorification. We become the beneficiaries of God's grace and mercy. The vessels that he uses to bring honor and glory to himself. And it all happens because he took on flesh and arrived in a manger, in a feeding trough, in Bethlehem, 2,000 years ago. Christmas story didn't begin in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. It began before time. And it went hurtling through Bethlehem. It came right into our hearts. That's why we're here this morning. What draws us out of our homes on a day like this? To be drawn closer to God. It goes through our hearts. It carries us through eternity. A never-ending Christmas story. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you. It is such an awesome honor be called one of your children. Such an awesome thing to ponder, Father, that this helpless baby in this manger, in this feeding trough, Father, would be the Savior of the world, would bring transformation to us, would change us so much that our desires and our hopes and our dreams would become fixated upon you. So we pray, Father, as we honor you this day, This would begin to permeate our lives, Father. Carry it beyond Christmas Day, Father, into our community, into the people that we touch, the people that we reach. Father, that you might be honored in the manner that we live. In Jesus' name, amen.